Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I'm the editor of the TLS and I am of course with Thea Lenarduzzi, Italian chatelaine that she is. Thea, uh, we've not had an ALF update for a while. Um, uh, how's he coped with the heat? Uh, oh, he's been he's been quite still. Oh. He's been he's been very very hot. He's got a double coat, you see. Oh no. Yeah. You like um, the heat. You like the heat, though, don't you? I love the heat. So, yeah, I'm I'm fine with it. Have I told you that he's he's basically as if overnight become a teenager. Have I told you that? Go on. So he's approaching his first birthday, we think, you know, insofar as we can know that from a, a dog who was found on the street. Yeah. And yeah, he's he's become very emotional. God's sake. <laughs> so he's very amorous one minute. Is and he? then Yeah. Uh, and then beside himself in, with fear and, and, and worry oh the next. Oh, my God. He's all over the place. He's a wreck. He's like, you're now living with a hairy teenager. <laughs> he's very emo. No one wants a hairy emo. Well, you do, don't you? I love him. You love the hairy emo dog. Alf the hairy emo dog is, is perhaps how it will now remain in my mind. Uh, well, enough of that. Uh, here's the bit where I plug subscriptions to the TLS and give you a special offer available only to our podcast listeners. If you live in the USA or Canada, go to podcast.the-tls.com. If you live anywhere else, including the UK, go to the-tls.co.uk forward slash pod 19 and you'll get five issues for just £5 or $5. This week, our favourite campaigner for justice, Clive Stafford-Smith, is on the line from Islamabad. He has written a pretty savage review of a book by an American prosecutor and offers his own experience of American justice. Sarah Green is in the studio to tell the story not only of the poet Lionel Johnson, a figure from the 1890s, but also the failed attempts to tell his story ever since, including by a criminal in the 1950s who once stole bedding from an aristocrat. And David Hurd has been telling his refugee tales for the last five years, an annual event that is part walking pilgrimage, part protest and part collection of narratives about those unjustly treated by Britain's questionable immigration system. He will bear witness once more with us.
In the 1950s, Adrian Earle was convicted of stealing miscellaneous items from Lady Beaumont, including a guitar, a necklace, a recording machine and a quantity of dresses and bedding, and demanding money with menaces from her fiancé. What, you might say, has that got to do with the poet and critic from the 1890s, Lionel Johnson? Well, as Sarah Green tells us, Earl also spent his time collecting biographical material about Johnson and not sharing it with anyone. He's one of the reasons so many Johnson biographies have failed to be written. So what can we now know about Lionel Johnson and how central a figure to the turn of the century literary world is he? Sarah Green has made a fascinating biographical study of her own and is in the studio to tell us more. Sarah, hello. Hi. Let's deal with poor old Adrian Earl before we get to Johnson. What was his game? Why was he so interested in in grabbing stuff about Johnson and how much damage has he done, do you think? Well, I mean, it's hard to know what his motivation could have been if it wasn't just that he was very interested in Lionel Johnson. Um, He had certain similarities himself. They'd both been to Winchester College, for example, um, which might have been where he got that from. Adrian Earle was also very close with Alfred Douglas, who had been a very good friend of Lionel Johnson's. Douglas, yeah, and obviously he's much much older by this point. But, yeah. um, Oscar, Oscar Wilde's lover, I'm sure everyone knows. Yes, just, yeah. yeah um, but he wasn't a was he? He's not a writer though, Alfred Earl. You don't think he was collecting this stuff to write a biography himself? Well, he wrote a little bit. He always claimed to be writing a biography. It never materialised, but so did many failed biographies of Lionel Johnson never materialise. I think he probably was quite seriously thinking of doing something and was holding on to the material because that's what you did then. When he was collecting Um, for some 10 years, I think you say. Yeah, quite a long time. Um, And never really sold anything, which I think is the interesting thing because I think there were points when he was really short on money. So where is is the stuff? God knows. (laughs) So we don't know... I wish I knew. We don't know what he's got. We don't know what he has. And we don't know what he did with it. We don't know what he did with it. That's extraordinary. Before I read this piece, actually, Lionel Johnson didn't mean very much Mm. to me... uh, as a name what do we know about if, if someone said give the elevator pitch for Lionel Johnson that's, that's known generally what would it be um, so there are certain sort of key things that they might know he's an 1890s poet um, they're less likely to know that he's a literary critic as well they probably know that he was an alcoholic um, he was he died prematurely in 1902 by a massive stroke he was only 35 years old um, was good friends with Walter Pater and a lot of the other literary figures of the 1890s. So he's become this figure of the 1890s. Yeah. And he wrote a poem which is called Dark Angel. Dark Angel, yeah. That's yeah. The, the most anthologised, most widely known. So here's this figure. We know a bit about him. It's a pretty exciting time in terms of people that like this sort of Oscar Wilde time, Walter yeah, Pater. Yeah, people definitely. love this. Yeah. Hardy's around, mm-hmm. Yates is about. This is quite a good inglet time, isn't yeah, it, for, it for, for people. Is. So what did you discover? So I was on a trip to the Winchester College archives to look at Lionel Johnson material, uh, because this is where he was at school. Um, I was with Ruth Derham, who was looking at um, Frank Russell's stuff. She's writing a biography about him. And we were taken by the archivist to a sort of obscure room at the end of our visit. Only had a couple of minutes left. Um, And she just put these books on the table, which were different copies of Lionel Johnson's work. Nothing that seemed to be very interesting. Um, and as soon as I saw them, I, w- I was thinking, well, that's that's not the binding that I know. This is very odd. There was only one edition. Um, and you wouldn't know from looking at them that there's anything unusual because they've been taken apart and rebound um, with a completely new binding. Um, and Lionel Johnson dedicated all of his poems to somebody, um, to one of his friends. And these copies have been rebound with letters written from these people to Lionel Johnson. Um, so where Adrian L has sort of wiped out so much 
to do with Lionel Johnson, uh, given the impression that he wasn't really that closely involved. And people have said that these dedications were probably more wishful thinking, so more of a networking. name job, kind of an yeah, embarrassing name or a job way part. of trying to put himself in a community that he wasn't necessarily part of. But these books seem to suggest that that's just not the case. These are very personal letters. A lot of them are very affectionate. Um, some of them are more to do with sort of literary networking, asking for reviews, asking for comments on their work, um, but showing him sort of really involved. Well, actually, he sort of comes across as a bit of a kingmaker. People mm. are sort of writing to him, asking him if, if he can yeah, hook him up with such and such a review Absolutely. or yeah. whatever. And asking. these are big names. Yes, yeah, definitely. So it's um, Yates, it's Hardy. Yates, there's one from Hardy. Um, the Hardy one is a, um, thanking Johnson for his book on Hardy, um, The Art of Thomas Hardy, which was the first book to ever be written about Hardy. Um, and he's very appreciative, yeah. Um, and the, the binding of these books, mm. it, does it look like a DIY job? Does it look like he did it himself? So um, I've consulted Tim Wiltshire who, at the Winchester Bindery, uh, which is right next to the college, um, and he reckons it's a sort of mid between the wars, probably not London-based, um, quite provincial, possibly a personal job if it's somebody who had some experience. But that would be after Johnson died. Absolutely, after Johnson died, yeah. So he, there's a chance that he had some input. I mean, he chose the names that this was built around, for one. Um, he might have interleaved letters or chosen to, to keep those letters. For publication, do you think? Is this, is, for general, wider possibly, publication? Possibly, or just as a sort of memorialisation or a way of kind of shaping some kind of image of what his time was like. Um, but it's possible that he wasn't involved at all. Um, it may well have just been somebody who had his letters. Which Did Adrian Earle do it? A lot. Adrian he had, would never he might have, have had, had the letters. So he never had these letters, because okay. I think if he did have them, then they would have disappeared along with everything else. Yeah, so, so, but so they both went to Winchester. What if it was an act of attrition? What? Adrian <laughs> Earle, having realised that he'd sort of stolen all sorts of private yeah. belongings. yeah of a fellow Winchester College student. A bit later, though, so if it's between the wars, this is a bit before Adrian Earle's time, isn't it? Yeah, so it's just before the letters all go back to Isabella Johnson, who was the first person that Adrian Earle steals everything from. Who was the sister. His sister, of, which okay. is Lionel Johnson's sister. It's a great detective story. Let's <laughs> uh, talk some more about the letters. Um, Catherine Tynan, you mentioned, yeah. is a, is a, is a, is a rather beautiful letter. Yeah, about the death of her baby son. Yeah, why, why, were, they, why were they in touch with one another? Uh, so partly because uh, it's the sort of Irish Catholic network that I think became much more important to Johnson towards the end of the 1890s as that sort of Rhymers Club group starts to break up. Um, things like the wild trials had happened, certain people were hanging around with different people, um, spending a lot of time in Dieppe. It wasn't sort of Johnson's scene anymore, it seems. Um, so he started spending more time with his Irish friends, more time in Ireland as well. Uh, and so he says... She says to him, no one, unless they have had our experience, could realise how a baby of six weeks old could leave such a world in ruins. Mm. Uh, and then she has another baby later okay, on. Yeah, quite quickly. That, you, that, you that Johnson was very affectionate with. She remembers in the memoirs that he, he used to sort of come cooing into the room to try and hold the baby. So he's obviously a nice guy. Do you get the impression from reading these things he was a yeah. not nice person? No, personally, I, I, I would say so. Um, I think Catherine Tyne in particular, that she focuses on these more personal, more affection, affectionate um, aspects of, of his life. Um, she talks a lot about his affection for her dog, um, poor Dean, who um, uh. she said that he, they used to come home from a walk and just find Johnson in the living room with poor Dean in his arms. A poodle Terrier Cross. Yes. Yeah. Hypoallergenic, no Very doubt. Very interesting dog. Yeah. So you now like Lionel Johnson. I, I feel, I'm, I'm, I'm converted. Yeah. Um, he hated Oscar Wilde. Um, so, Is hate too strong? Yeah, well, there's been a lot of conjecture about that. Um, 
the the person who this this quote from is from um, Alfred Ferrand obviously thought that that was the case. Um, what did he say? Um, uh, so he said, "I know you hate wild," yeah, uh, which is the strongest expression of hate. Um, there's a tradition that the poem um, entitled "Destroyer of the Soul" is written about. Oscar Wilde. So Lionel Johnson introduced Alfred Douglas to Oscar Wilde in 1891 um, and it's said that this this poem which starts I hate you with a necessary hate um, and is about the corruption of a friend's soul is about that relationship and what Oscar so they bla- done. So they blame Oscar Wilde for Bose, for what happened to Bose. This is, this is the, the corruption idea. of Bose. Yeah. Um, so there's no, Johnson never said that that poem was about Wilde to, I mean, I never published anything that said so um, but he dedicated it to Dash um, and in these books that, that I've found, um, somebody's filled in O.W. Really? In that dash. So they, they're obviously convinced that that... Would they have known each other, Johnson and Wilde? Yeah, they would have definitely come across each other. Um, I don't know how well they knew each other, but they enough for him to introduce his Oxford friend, Alfred Douglas, to him. And presumably we just don't know enough to be able to tell whether Lionel Johnson was in fact in love with... Bosey and it was this awkward. Oh. It would be very difficult to say yeah. whether that was the case or not. Um, certainly some people have conjectured that that would be the case um, or that this hatred for Wilde was a kind of repressed homosexuality in itself. Mm. Um, I think there's a problem when you start identifying any um, expressions of hatred or denials as being They're in themselves the opposite. <laughs> yeah. What, but was, what do we know about Lionel Johnson's romantic life? Anything? Very little. Um, he talked a lot against homosexuality, just oh. occasionally. There are certain phrases, but yeah, that how to interpret yeah, that. that um, there are some letters that have veiled references to a possible relationship with a woman at the Alhambra, um, which was a music hall that was well known for prostitution uh, when he was at university. That's the only evidence of any kind of sexual relationship. There's a novel to be written about <laughs> Lionel, Lionel Johnson. Is it? Is it not, Definitely think, is, um, yeah. And the bio- Are you, are you going to try and write a biography? Um, if somebody would publish it. <laughs> Do you think people wouldn't? Um, how big a figure is he? But, I mean, this is a fascinating... Well, it's a difficult uh, thing, isn't it? How big a figure is he mm. is, has been is now up for discussion now that you've discovered these books because all of a sudden a man who seemed isolated, peripheral, you know, marginal is now very much at the centre of this buzzing literary world. And this is what these books do. They put him at the centre of um, interlocking networks. So we've got the Rhymers Club network, the sort of Arthur Simmons, Yeats, um, Richard Legallian are all represented in in these letters. Um, But also sort of other networks that might be slightly less expected. There's a sort of Christian socialist network going on there. There's an Irish network. An Irish nationalist network. An Irish nationalist network as well, yeah. um, With um, Mark Ryan. Which Oscar Wilde was kind of tangentially connected to in various points as well we and also yeah. if he introduced Bosey to Oscar Wilde mm. what did he expect yeah, but, but that, <laughs> yeah indeed but that yeah. makes him I mean that makes him pretty central doesn't it I think absolutely but maybe yeah. it's a no, maybe a novel would do it better than a well I mean there's so thing. little concrete information that your imagination so, can this is true set free. yeah and this is what the sort of biographical efforts so far have been largely having to fill in these gaps um, and they've been able to do it in the way that they want to a lot of the time. So this starts with Yeats um, and onwards of using Johnson to sort of symbolise something. Yeah. Um, so for Yeats, he was the symbol of the tragic generation, the sort of torn personality um, of the 1890s. And, you know, he's not the only one to have made that argument. 
I mean, you could write a novel which has Alfred Earl in it as well. Stig, are you going to write this novel? No, then? I'm not going to write this novel. <laughs> but I'm just saying you could you could have a you could have a sort of fifties yeah. aspect with, with <laughs> so, yeah. Alfred Earl. Ste- I mean, he I love the fact he's stealing the bedding, and I also like mm. demanding with menaces, which is I a love great that phrase. Yeah, you, you don't get that anymore. But <laughs> no. it, well, it, well, it's a legal phrase, isn't it? It's, oh, yeah. it, it's the yeah. sort of black. It's blackmail. Blackmail, isn't it? essentially. Yeah. Uh, and you could sort of imagine Alan Hollinghurst writing a kind yes. of a two-stranded <laughs> novel yeah. of the two lives interweaving. Well, there's three of us in this room. I'm not going to. Does anyone want to? <laughs> to, 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 Could to, possibly. Yeah. Um, just finally, then, what what do you think the person, whoever it was, collecting that material together? Mm. What were they trying to do? Do you, do you have any sense of that? Mm. I mean, I think um, anybody who had his papers. So there's only really two people who had hold of those papers before Adrian Earl would have had access to them. Um, both of them. So this um, Arthur Galton, who was a good friend of his, and Frederick Manning, who was a, a poet and novelist who lived with Galton. Both of them tried to write biographies. And I'm told that this is a quite a common thing to do when you're failing to write a biography, is to create some kind of item um, or something, some kind of stage so that you have something that is an achievement. Um, but I think there's a, it's interesting that they kept it at that rather than a written biography. There's some kind of cl- like deliberate collaboration, an idea that this is a biography that's written partly by Johnson and partly by whoever owned the letters and partly by time and partly by the feelings that are aroused by the reader as they're, they're going through these things. Um, a lot of the point seems to be about affection and friendship and the everyday. Yeah. Um, I think if anyone, I'm, I'm sure some publishers do listen to this podcast. I think, <laughs> Sarah, you <laughs> should be commissioned either to write a novel or if you don't want to do that, write, write, write this. with the biography. Do you know, this, this is a biography okay. that you could yeah. see. I mean, it's because it's a silhouette biography. There was biography a biography of, of, a few years ago, wasn't there? There was, we it was a 2012 it. one. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't use some of the newer material that's yeah. come to light since. And it's kind of a biography of the age, really. In the 18, yeah. People love the 1890s, don't they? And they do. This is true, yeah. Um, well, OK, well, that's the, ch- the challenge is for someone listening to this to, to commission you, <laughs> Sarah Green, to write a fictional or otherwise description <laughs> of these events. Uh, yeah. Sarah Green, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
American justice is a mirage, asserts Clive Stafford-Smith this week. He's reviewing Preet Bharara's Doing Justice, a prosecutor's thoughts on crime, punishment and the rule of law from the perspective of someone who is inclined to seek to understand the behaviour of those we deem criminals rather than to tell stories of their punishment. As Sister Helen Prejean taught me and many others that we are all more than our worst 15 minutes. This is very much the Council for Defence's case for prosecution against the Council for Prosecution. Clive makes his polemical case about a world of ridiculous success rates, inequality of arms and questionable prosecutorial practices. He is aghast at the sheer imbalance of it all and brings his own experiences of the failing system, like the time a dog called Junkyard was indicted as a getaway driver in order to help prosecute a case against an outlaw biker. He also considers the most catastrophic interrogation of the century in which a prisoner was tortured to corroborate the claim of the existence of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, leading not only to a false conviction, but contributing to a war that resulted in roughly a million innocent deaths to date and chaos across the Middle East. Clive, one of the great figures in the world fighting for justice, is always a man to unfold a tale to harrow up your soul. And he is kindly coming to us today from Islamabad to do so. Clive, hello. Hello. Let's start with the book, Doing Justice. I think I know the answer to this, but how did it make you feel as you were reading it? Well, it sort of depresses me in the sense that, uh, and I'm certainly not advertising a book I wrote, which was called Injustice or The Injustice System. But it does strike me that very often in, the, in what we call the justice system, we have all the wrong people in the wrong jobs. And, you know, for all what Preet writes in his book, I think it does ultimately reflect that he's a prosecutor who thinks everyone's guilty and thinks that one of the mirages is this notion of the presumption of innocence, because he says, you know, why would I prosecute someone who wasn't guilty? And nowhere in the book does he begin to suggest that perhaps um, he might have made a mistake or two along the way. And I'm here to tell you that I make mistakes every day. Uh, so, so it sort of reconfirmed my notion that uh, the people who are prosecuting my clients are just never going to admit they make mistakes, and that that makes it very dangerous. And crucially, they're allowed to prosecutors are allowed to handpick the cases, aren't they? So they'll pick the case because they'll think this guy's guilty, and then they'll just go and go and go to prove that. But that's very true. But they also have unbelievable power, and no one really gets this. But I guess I'd ask you this: if I said to one of you that you're going to either get life in prison or I might even execute you if you don't tell me that the other person there with you in the room is guilty of a crime. But if you are just willing to tell, tell me that that other person confessed to you that he or she had done a crime, then I'll let you walk free and I might even give you a payout and put you in the witness protection program, give you a new life and all of that. You know, it takes an amazingly strong person to resist that. At the same time, if I as a defense lawyer um, were to do that, or if I were even to offer a Mars bar to someone to change their story, I'd go to prison for perverting the course of justice. So the, the sort of imbalance between prosecutors and defense is unbelievable. And you, you don't get any sense of that from Preet's book. And I'm afraid I don't think you get much of a sense of that um, generally either in the whole discussion of justice. I can confirm that Thea is indeed guilty of a crime and did confess to me. Uh, <laughs> but look, I, you've cracked I, me I already. You've cracked me already. 
You'd do that for the Mars bar, wouldn't you? I mean, you wouldn't even wait <laughs> no, for I'll, the forgiveness of life in prison. I'm right? so ready to roll <laughs> over, Clive. It's untrue. Um, you, the, the statistic that kind of Thea's alluding to there, and you quote in, in the piece, is that of 70-odd thousand cases that go to disposition in 2016, more than 99% resulted in conviction. When I read that in the proof, I actually asked Toby Lichter to check that fact because it seemed so absurd to me. It didn't seem likely um, is there an argument, though, that this means they're they're choosing their cases wisely? They're picking cases where, and they're not they're not running cases where they're trying to, to to railroad people because they're only picking good ones. Well, the truth is, they're not trying to railroad people ever. I don't think you'll find a prosecutor who says, "Let me find an innocent person and railroad that person." So I don't believe that for one second. What they are doing, though, is they're believing all of these people guilty. And, and I guess what you have to ask yourself is this. If they have a 99.62% conviction rate, is there anything else in human um, labors anywhere that has that sort of rate? And do you honestly believe they're that good? And I can tell you they're not, because I personally have counseled people to plead guilty when I thought they were totally innocent because they were being threatened with the death penalty on the one side and on the other side I could work them out a deal where they only had to spend a limited amount of time in prison. And it just was mad to roll the dice, particularly, for example, in a, in a capital case where to get on the jury in America in a death penalty case, you have to swear up and down that you would impose a death sentence. So the deck is pretty stacked in the first place. And I think I would be mad not to um, advise my client to take a sweetheart deal if offered, uh, just to avoid the risk of, of dying for something that he or she didn't do. You mentioned quite a lot of cases in, in, in this uh, in this piece, all of them eye-opening. Should we talk briefly about Brandon Mayfield, who was accused of the Madrid train bombing? What 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 does his case illustrate, do you think? Well, I think that's very interesting. Brandon Mayfield was a, um, a lawyer in on the West Coast in the US, who was originally charged with the Madrid train bombing. It was back um, 15 years ago, and it was a terrorist bombing. And the FBI said that his fingerprint was found on the train and therefore had to show that he was involved in the bombing. Um, and it all turns out to be total nonsense. But the most important thing from where I sit is that this is one of the few cases where Preet admits that the prosecution might make a mistake. Now, he doesn't admit it in any case that his office did. And indeed, the one case where the court said that, that his office made a mistake, he insists that that's not true. But in this case, he's talking about one of his fellow prosecutors. And his recitation of the facts just illustrates all the problems. You know, he goes through saying, oh, my goodness, well, they had reason to think that this guy really was the, the person who was involved in this terrorist act because, I mean, he had married a Muslim immigrant from Egypt. He himself, underlined, had converted to Islam. Not only that, but he frequented a particular mosque in Beaverton, Oregon, that had received attention from local authorities. So these are the facts, the confirmatory bias that made the, the prosecutors and the FBI think this guy was guilty. What Preet doesn't mention most tellingly, of course, is that this poor chap Mayfield, apart from being a U.S. veteran and being uh, you know, terribly patriotic about the U.S., 
had not left the country for more than 10 years. And it was easy to prove that he couldn't possibly have been in Spain. And that tells you two things. One is that the, the FBI, when they were looking at him, were incredibly biased and only looking at the facts that tended to make him look guilty. But second, that Preet himself, when he's telling a story about a catastrophic failure of the system, which really ruined this poor lawyer's life that he was tarred as a, as a terrorist, that he can't bring himself to admit that it was total nonsense and it would have taken very, very little investigation to determine that it was total nonsense. How did it play out in, in court, just out of curiosity? Presumably, um, Brandon Mayfield's lawyers immediately seized upon the detail of him having this, you know, he hadn't left the country. And did that not just sort of stop it there? No, is that is better than that, actually. The Spanish said, this is rubbish. This is not a match of a fingerprint. And the FBI carried on insisting that they thought it was. Um, but then all this other stuff came out. And he was, yeah, he was exonerated. But then, of course, he sued. Yeah. Because yeah. they'd ruined his life. And, you know, in the end, they reached a settlement because they had no alternative. But one of the things that's awfully difficult to get people to do um, is to say those really, really simple words, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, and, and I have to say, I've only ever had one prosecutor ever say that, uh, a really decent guy in Louisiana who had put a guy on death row who was innocent, who said sorry and said it very publicly. But the vast majority, unfortunately, and I, let's face it, um, on a human level, it's actually quite hard sometimes for all of us to say the words I'm sorry. But it's something that the government suffers from intensely is saying, you know, we just ruined your life, Brandon Mayfield. Um, we're sorry. You know, we sued on behalf of uh, Reprieve, the charity that I founded in London. We sued on behalf of a Libyan who the British had rendered all around the world, um, Mr. Belhaj, and rendered him with his pregnant wife to Libya, where he got tortured by Gaddafi and all the rest of it. And he was a very principled man, and he didn't want to make lots of money off it. He just wanted the British government to say those simple words, I'm sorry. And they spent hundreds of thousands of pounds resisting it. Yeah. Finally, they lost, and they had to do it, and they made a, an apology in Parliament. But why not just say, I'm sorry, I, you know, we just messed up. And, and I think that whole reticence to admit a mistake is, is a huge part of the, the problem with the judicial process. You also talk about confirmation bias and, and, and what you, you seem to get here is that once someone has determined that this person is guilty, there is a whole set of scaffolding that's erected in order to prove the point. And in the case you make in the article is that's often disproportionate, unfair. You can use snitches, you can terrorise witnesses, you can sweeten witnesses. Um, what sort of practices are, are, are you talking about? The ability to get someone to say something. Well, let me say first, my old friend John Ronson, uh, who you know, the author, has written a book on confirmation bias. And he once said to me, you know, I'd never heard of confirmation bias, but now I've written a book about it. I see it everywhere. <laughs> yes, well <laughs> Kind of makes the point, doesn't it? Um, you know, again, the big danger here is not um, that people are going around trying to force folk to, to say the wrong thing. It's that they honestly believe it. So a law enforcement agent who comes in thinking that a particular person is guilty is going to be leaning on other people to say what the law enforcement agent wants them to say because he or she 
thinks that that's going to prove a guilty person to be guilty. And one thing that Preet says is, you know, we, we have scum or the devil as our witnesses, but that's okay because the person on trial is the devil or scum. Well, you know, that's kind of presumption of guilt, isn't it? And, and yet it results in them coercing or threatening many other people to say what's going to convict that individual, not because they think they're going to convict an innocent person, but because they're certain that person's guilty. But the moment you approach a case that way, you make it inevitable that you're going to convict an innocent person. It goes further sort of before the event, doesn't it, as well, because entrapment is something that is supposedly okay. It's true. I mean, again, I always think about this if it was me doing it. You know, if I came to you and uh, started talking about someone you really don't like, you know, a bit like, um, I don't know if you remember that story about the guy who I think is now our prime minister. Who <laughs> I, knew, I knew where you were going. <laughs> allegedly. Um, you know, that's not the sort of thing I go around doing, I, I will say. And even if I had the power, I wouldn't do that. But actually, when you do have that power, and you go to someone like whatever the guy's name was, Guppy or whatever his name is, and say, look, you know, we think we should go beat this other fellow up. You know, the government can do that. And, and, you know, you and I might not actually be inclined to go beat someone up. But when someone comes along and says, let's do it and I'll pay you a you know, hundred thousand pounds or whatever I'm going to pay you, you make it exponentially more likely that some person who didn't have the wherewithal or even actually ultimately want to go commit a crime is going to go out and do it. And the government does that, does that all the time. And uh, I just said the government does that. <laughs> I tell you, I don't know. I'm a bit jet-lagged out here in Islamabad, I will say. But the government does that, and they sort of create crimes that would never have existed. And in one of the cases that involved uh, Preet, the judge, you know, had this wonderful line where she said that, you know, this guy was never capable of doing it. And it wasn't until the government came and told him how to do it and encouraged him how to do it that he actually committed or, or looked like he might commit a criminal offence. Yeah, Clive, we can't... I, I could talk to you uh, for a lot longer. We're going to have to leave it. But I just think there's a line you say in, in the piece where you say, perhaps there should be a rule that nobody should have the power to send a fellow citizen to prison without a deep understanding of what that punishment entails. If... I had the power to make you the chief prosecutor in the United States of America. Would you send people to prison? I mean, I've spent a lot of time in prison. I, I have a pretty good sense of what a prison's like. I've spent a lot of time in some of those cells in Guantanamo Bay. Um, so, you know, I, I think I have a pretty good idea of what it means to say, say to someone, you're human detritus and you're going to spend the rest of your life in a little cell yeah. um, in some awful prison. And, you know, that that's a very sobering experience, and it would make me very, very careful if I was in the position that I don't think you're going to give me as chief prosecutor in America. No. It would make me very, very uh, reticent before I'd do it. But don't get me wrong. I think, you know, Preet is trying to be a very decent guy, and he's obviously a nice person. I just think that we need to be way, way more careful when it comes to sending our fellow citizens to prison. Is he, is he, is he looking for office, do you think? Is this a, um, a manifesto for office? I don't know. I think he just published something in the Baltimore newspaper that was hypercritical of Donald Trump. 
So he's not going to get any sort of office in the next uh, year or two or maybe not the next five years. Um, but who knows later on down the line. And, and you know, I'm not saying that he's a bad dude, of course. I, I don't think that at all. And I think he could do certain jobs very well. I just think we need, need to take the program of being a prosecutor a lot more carefully than he does in his book. Uh, very good. Clive Zaffer-Smith, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. In 2015, writing in the TLS, David Hurd pointed out that the British public was largely unaware that refugees and asylum seekers were being indefinitely detained in their name in so-called immigration removal centres run, for the most part, by private security companies. The UK, Heard explained, was the only Western European country in which there was no maximum time limit on immigration detention, so a person could be held without charge for months or even years in prison-like conditions awaiting deportation. In France, by contrast, the limit was 45 days. In any one year, around 30,000 people in the UK were held in this way. This was the backdrop against which that same year Refugee Tales, billed as a walk in solidarity with refugees, asylum seekers and detainees, set out to walk from Dover to Crawley via Canterbury, covering 80 miles in nine days. Along the way, via collaborations between ex-detainees and established writer-performers, stories were shared with the walking, listening public of life in detention centres or, for those lucky enough to be released, of an existence in limbo with the threat of redetention ever-present. Years later, we are, David Hurd writes this week, more aware of the situation. Indeed, on the particular question of indefinite detention, there is no doubt that political progress has been made. The media, too, is more awake to the injustice. And yet, still, the walks continue. David joins us in the studio now to tell us why. Hello, David. Hi. Um, you're not long back from a walk from Brighton to Hastings. Yes. How, how did that one go? Can you, can you give us a sense of how, of how it works? So this year's work w- walk was uh, bigger and more international and I think in certain ways more, more intense than ever. Um, we were walking, so there's about uh, 80 people walk the whole distance, which is five days. So as you said, from, from Brighton to Hastings. But we're joined every day by people who are doing like a day or a couple of days. So at any one time, there might be 200 people walking. Um, and the... Previously, uh, we have, so with, with the exception of the walk from Canterbury, to, from Dover to Crawley, we've walked into London. We've walked uh, each year from a different direction. We've walked into central London and we've walk, walked into Westminster and we've sort of symbolically banged, banged on the door of the Houses of Parliament to remind people that uh, we are still detaining people indefinitely in the UK. Uh, but this year we changed direction, uh, walking from, uh, from Brighton to Hastings. In effect, we were walking the border. And we we just wanted to be uh, very visible in our presence at the border, partly uh, to remind everybody that it's border policy that produces detention, but partly so that we, uh, as we always try to do, we could rethink that landscape as we walk through it. Each year, uh, we have a series of talks running through the lunchtimes. This year, we had a series of talks entitled Reimagining the Border, where a group of people from different backgrounds and different disciplines just showed us different ways that we might think about the border. So uh, and in it this was era of Brexit. Presumably, borders is particularly well, and of, of Trump as well. I mean, Mexico, yeah. the Mexico. Uh, I mean, the so in the in the five years that we have walked, 
what we've walked into is a history in which the border and detention at the border has become more and more pronounced. Um, we, we wish we hadn't had to walk five years. We wish this. We would wish that this wasn't the case. But the fact that the walk was more international, which is to say that there were people joining us from several different countries is an indicator of the fact that detention is really with us now. We are too many regimes, uh, one regime is too many, but too many regimes are detaining as a matter of default. And there's an understanding that the question has to be addressed both where it's occurring, nationally and locally, but in some sense, uh, internationally, because plainly detention at the border, one way or another, is an international issue. Obviously, there's a long history of walking as, as protest, but why... Why did walking and specifically telling tales seem like the right form of protest in this context? The importance of the tales is uh, straightforwardly that at the point at which uh, the project started, out of the work of the Gatwick Detainees Welfare Group, uh, as you were saying right at the beginning, it was very little known uh, that in this country we detain people indefinitely in this, in this fashion. Um, so just as it was very little known, so also uh, the stories of people who are who experienced detention were almost never heard. There was there was very little recognition that this was taking place, and it was a matter of kind of great offence that a person could come into this country, live some time in this country, leave this country, and there be in effect no trace of their no official trace of their having been there. So it became very important to to get the story out, partly just to raise awareness um, and then uh, through the raising awareness just to go to the people the politicians who are making policy around this to remind them that these these stories are the consequences uh, of of the of the policy of detention um, I mean there's, there's 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 all kinds of ways of contemplating that question I mean w- w- one is that it's it's um it's actually germane to the hostile environment that the story of the person who has sought asylum here is excluded in all kinds of ways and is thwarted and is disrupted in all kinds of official settings, and so and not listened to and not listened to. Well, I mean, the, the, it, no all, record is made in in the hearings, for example. Well, I mean, not, it's really a shocking down. thing, isn't it? But so the so for instance, the uh, the bail hearing, the point at which a person might be released from detention, is not a court of record. Um, it's not so hard to record things these days. Um, so this is a kind of shocking thing. There are you know there's a, there's a kind of there there is a uh, there's a written determination so there is some account given but the voice of the appellant in that circumstance the person who sought asylum does not enter the record there's a there was a wonderful project which began uh, many years ago called the bail observation project which would just simply send people in to write everything down because you know these these records need to be kept and so there is a um, there's a very active silencing uh, of the uh, of the voice and therefore the story of the person who has sought asylum and has experienced detention and I think what the what the project is partly observing is that therefore there must be a power in that it, you 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 only you only want to silence to the degree uh, that people are being silenced if somewhere or other you have an anxiety that if the story is really told people might think otherwise. Um, and how, um, what do people think? Because that seems to be, you know, we're living in increasingly febrile times yeah. where border issues are contentious and yeah. people have strong opinions in all sorts of directions. Yeah. Are people willing to listen to the stories? Have you, you've done this five years. Has there been a hostile environment within the public to listen <laughs> to these stories as well as a hostile environment created by 
by the government? So uh, the the answer to that is no. Uh, we we worried right at the beginning, and we still worry uh, that that at any point we might uh, encounter hostility. We especially worried at the beginning. We were walking just after the 2015 election. We were walking through uh, Kent and Surrey and Sussex, not obvious territory that might be sympathetic to this project. UKIP territory, really? Yeah, I mean, certainly Kent at that time was was uh, was was almost yeah. I mean, certainly it almost went UKIP at that point, parts of Kent. Um, so this was this was potentially hostile territory. Now, in fact, what we have encountered wherever we have gone uh, is uh, great shows of hospitality. In fact, what we say in response to this question is we get offered more cake than we can possibly eat as as we walk through this, <laughs> these spaces. Um, now, this is part. This will you know. The, I, I I guess the, one one reason for that is that people who come to hear the public performances are to some degree self-selecting. This is not to say that they already know about the situation because many people leave those readings uh, having discovered this this fact of indefinite detention. But, you know, they're, they're going along there in the first place. But really what we sense is that there is a desire, not amongst everybody, but amongst a large number of people, to uh, have a different narrative told around the question of the border and around the question of uh, of migration and around the question of asylum there's i mean there's actually a yearning for it and i i uh, i think that's one of the reasons that the project has gained the the degree of momentum that it has the home office has pointed to a reduction in recent years of the number of detainees why should we be skeptical or dissatisfied with with that claim we shouldn't be, in a sense, um, in that a lowering of the number uh, means that the number is going in a good direction. But uh, I do want to contextualise this just a little bit. Uh, so that the power to detain um, was uh, granted to the uh, Secretary of State in immigration legislation from 1971. And it's very interesting to notice the graph uh, uh, which shows how much that power has been used. So in 1973, 95 people were detained indefinitely in this country. And then in 1988, there were 2,166 people detained indefinitely. And then in 2015, when we started walking, over 29,000 people were being detained indefinitely in this country. Now, that figure has come down. So in the year ending 2018, 24,748 people were detained indefinitely. So a reduction is a good thing. But what we are observing is that the uh, the power itself the law that allows this is wrong and uh, that when introduced it was arguably it wasn't intended to be used to this degree but this is the degree to which it has been used and therefore it's absolutely imperative that the law is changed so that uh, while we are currently seeing uh, something of a reduction, not much of a reduction, but something of a reduction mm. that we don't at some point in the near future or whenever see uh, a similar escalation. Likewise, if the detention comes to an end, what are they being released to? Because that's the other side of things. That's the hostile environment. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the piece tries to, to, to describe at, at some length what that hostile environment means. But, of course, if you really want to understand what the hostile environment means, then you probably ought to, to look at the, 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 the tales themselves, uh, which are told both in that collaborative way that you're describing, but increasingly in first-person narratives, where people just record what it's like to live in, in what you're calling a shadow world, uh, a kind of, you know, this, this limbo that, that people talk about. Indefinite detention is core to the hostile environment. A person who has sought asylum in this country has to report their presence to the Home Office on a regular basis, a weekly or a fortnightly basis. Um, they have to report in at a, at a, uh, at a reporting centre. 
And it's typically at that moment of reporting that they might be detained or re-detained. In other words, it's the, the fact of the possibility of indefinite detention haunts a person for as long as they are in this circumstance. Um, uh, Hannah Arendt would call that a kind of terror. Okay, there is a terror being inflicted on on those people, and what we what we what we need to remember here is that the numbers of people experiencing that are the kind of numbers that we're talking. We're talking tens of thousands of people yeah. who are experiencing that on a daily basis. Uh, we have to leave it, but just for people listening now, what should they do? Can they should they go and read these stories? Should they give money? What what, what action would you like people to take? Okay, so there there there's uh, there's perhaps three things that a person might do. It would be great if people uh, if people were to to read the tales. There are three volumes volumes of refugee tales now and if having read the tales they're moved to act further they should visit uh, the refugee tales website refugeetales.org and having visited that what they really ought to do if they are as uh, as shocked as many people are that we do this in this country they should they should contact their mp and they should urge a very immediate change and if i could just add one thing the good news here is that because of the work of many organizations there is an amendment hovering in parliament not right now amidst all the confusion of of brexit uh, which would effect an end to indefinite detention, which has 88 signatories. Uh, those signatories come at the moment from, from across all parties, not mostly from the government, uh, but, but there, are, there are government MPs there. Th- this is a moment where things could change. It could stall, but things could change. Uh, if people were to write to their MPs to remind them that this has to happen, that would be great. Well, I hope people do that, David Hurd. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to David, to Sarah Green and to Clive Stafford-Smith. Get hold of this week's TLS for lots of poetry, plus country houses, smog, feminism and much more. Next week, no fear, I believe. I say without... No, without... I will be walking, in fact. Will you? Yeah. Wait, where are you going? Uh, Cornwall. Oh, lovely. To finish something I started two years ago. A walk? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Not a jigsaw puzzle. <laughs> The walk. All a right, walk, all right. Walk. you can report back about that. Uh, we're going to be turning our minds in Thea's absence to the avant-garde. Best black polo necks on. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.